Hello, and welcome to another edition of S'mores by Fireside. As always, you can watch these in video form by visiting meetfireside.com, click on the S'mores tab, or you can download us in podcast form wherever you like to get your podcast from. You can also learn more about our services for marketing for small businesses at meetfireside.com. Today, delighted to introduce you to Brandon from Tripero. Brandon, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yes, uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Trip Hero. We are a travel logistics platform that allows people to get to their vacation destinations easier, more effectively, and without all the anxiety, schlepping their stuff on a plane or a cab, et cetera. Does that mean I can throw my kids in a crate and you're going to take them as well? Because that's usually where the anxiety comes in. That's the, that's the biggest question we get. When are you going to be able to ship our kids? <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's funny. I thought I was being all original then. <laughs> So is this uh, is this people's luggage and skis and golf clubs and things? Yep, luggage, skis, golf clubs, anything. You know, a lot of we have obviously a lot of people that travel around adventure type activities like skiing, surfing, things like that. But surprisingly, once somebody does it in one of those activities, they tend to do it on kind of even like beach type vacations because it just takes such, such of the hassle out of the trip that you know it kind of become a new new way for them to travel. Right. So I suppose if they don't use a service like you, they're they're taking their own skis and golf clubs to the airports and trying to get them checked in and trying to get a vehicle big enough and things. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So it eliminates all that, you know, the getting to the airport, you know, you're in New York City or London or whatever. You, how do you get your stuff to the airport, first of all? So it kind of starts, the convenience starts right when you leave your door and just mm-hmm. traveling through the airport with, with a backpack or a little uh, or a large purse for the women. It's, it's game changing. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure. Okay. So was there a life experience you had that got you to start this business? Yes, sure was. I was a former Marine. So between 98 and 2000, I was a Marine. Moved to Vail to teach skiing while I was still in law school. I took all paper classes. But kind of the last few things I had left from the Marines, uh, my little dop kit, camouflage dop kit with my number on it and stuff. And I had a, a duffel and I had four iPods in because I'm a I love old school hip hop. So I had like everything you can imagine, old school hip hop in these four iPods and they were all lost. So kind of my last mementos from my time in the Marines and my music was all lost. Kind of it was in the back of my head for a couple of years. You know, I moved back to New York City to be a lawyer, graduated in 2007. So that didn't last too long. 2008 happened, then moved back out to Colorado, thought what, what I thought was going to be temporary. And then I saw this problem every day in the resorts, just hundreds and thousands of people, you know, schlepping their stuff, stuff getting lost, buying a large SUV that you never use again, just so you can fit your skis. So, you know, there was a few years there where I was working for Bell Resorts uh, as a manager at one of their high-end clubs. And literally, it was basically four years of market research for me. So I knew there was a problem and I knew that the people that were having the problem had the money to spend on convenience. So decided eventually to launched the company when I read an article in the New York Times about, I still remember the quote, packing for a family ski trip is so daunting, overwhelming, and stressful that many people just give up and refuse to go away for the winter. And honestly, when I read that, it kind of pissed me off. The idea that people would not go on a trip because of their stuff, you know, everybody knows how precious vacation time is with family, getting away from work, rejuvenating yourself, etc. And the fact that Baggage and luggage and gear can be such a hassle that you don't, that you might not choose to go because of it. Uh, I knew I was onto something then. That's interesting. So we have a, a place in the mountains in Winter Park, Colorado, and 
we sometimes have people that stay here through Airbnb that clearly fly in from a place where they don't do a lot of skiing or they just don't have the gear from previous ski trip, ski trips. So they'll go to the store downstairs and they'll buy a bunch. And then the cleaning crews that come in love it because people leave behind week old ski clothing, ski boots was one a couple of months ago. The cleaner's got a brand new set of ski boots that have probably been worn, you know, four or five days. So that certainly tells me at least that people aren't prepared to schlep it back for sure. Yep. Yep. That happens all the time. My, uh, my wife now, when I first met her, she was at children's ski school in Vail and they used to just leave their stuff all the time for the kids. So one of the things we do offer, we offer storage. So these customers like that to come back year after year, We'll store the stuff. They don't have to take it back. And by the time, the reason they do that is by by the time you you can buy a pair of boots and a pair of skis for about the same price, you can do rent them. So it's a definitely nice niche for people that allows them to travel more. And that's the big thing. Once you have the stuff, you're going to be able to travel more. And that's our goal is to get people to travel more to their favorite places. That's lovely. Did you always see yourself as a startup guy? Did you know this was going to be your life at some point? I should have. You know, I started my first business when I was five. Okay. What was the five-year-old business? I grew up with a single mother. So, you know, didn't have a bunch of money. We lived in a kind of a campground setting and I literally went around the campground, set up recycling bins all over the campground so people could put their stuff in. And then every week I would ride my bike with a little trailer on the back with a little little wagon on the back, get them recycled. (laughs) And then I expanded that to the next, we lived by Six Flags in Texas and in Dallas. And then I expanded from there to another Another campground, another campground. So I made pretty good money back then for that, actually. That's great. So that was five years old. And then, uh, so what, how did that entrepreneurial journey continue? I did everything. I would, you know, we started, uh, I think it was first grade. I got in trouble because I started, you know, pencil break. Yep. So I, we started pencil break tournaments after school, but I started the tournaments. And then I also pl- supplied the pencils to everyone. So they had a pencil <laughs> for me. You know, I sold candy at school. You know, I sold T-shirts. I learned how to silk screen and make T-shirts, all that kind of stuff. And then I started working. There was a local grower that used to grow grow flowers and stuff. And I, I, I worked for them. They would give me the extra flowers. I'd be able to go sell myself. And this is between seven and twelve years old. Yeah, basically I had a full time job outside of school, all through high school, etc. Yeah, you absolutely should have known this was your uh, this was your destiny. So you were uh, sat reading that newspaper article. Yep. And how long from then was it until you started putting things in place to really get the business going? Yeah. So that was, it's probably like almost two and a half years because in, in the midst of that, I was creating a product around it. So I went through the whole design, engineering, uh, patent process of what we call the ski pod, it's a portable shipple ski locker. And then once that was completed and I was ready to go out and start raising money, et cetera, when we started raising money, the first question you're going to get, and this is what I tell all other entrepreneurs that are just starting out. My, the question was, how many have you sold? And I was like, none, but look how great it looks. And they're like, Brandon, you need to go get some money. Like prove that people are willing to pay for this. So quickly after that, we started shipping out of our one of my co-founder Jason's garage. So we would just go around the hotels and ask them if they had any, anybody wanted to ship their stuff home. And we made about $10,000 in one month doing it with no you know, real partnerships, just through connections we had, just talking to people we knew they were traveling in, et cetera. And we realized really quickly people were willing to pay. Then that kind of put the product itself on the back burner a little bit because people were eager to ship their stuff and eager to have a solution for this. So we started out just shipping. 
without the container, just shipping with what people had already. So whatever their skis and things were stored in, then uh, then that's just what you ship. So did the product continue later on, or did yeah, you? Yeah, the product's still in development now. Yeah. You know, we're we're going to be bringing it out here again soon. I get passionate about it because you know I, I created it, got out my old calculus books, and to do all the engineering and stuff is pretty fun. That's going to be the big game changing part of the company once that's able to be introduced. It's just right now we're trying to build an ecosystem that's ready for it when it's ready to be produced. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So when you were first raising money and those people who told you you needed to go prove it first, were you talking then to venture capitalists? Were you talking to individual seed investors? Who was it that gave you that initial advice? Yeah. So luckily I was at the Vail Mountain Club in Vail working for Vail Resorts, you know, and it's 400 members, you know, half of them were billionaires. So I had a good mentorship network, et cetera. So basically raising money from the people I knew we had befriended. There's quite a few alumni from my college that, that were members there. So a few took me under their wing. So it's basically kind of like friends and family, angel investing rounds. We didn't get VC money until after the second year. Okay, and then what was the impetus to go from that sort of seed money to the VC money? Was it the, the amount you needed or was it something else? A little bit, the amount we needed. And then if even if you get a small amount from a VC, it just allows other angels to it's they, they vet it for the other angels. So if uh, you know you know somebody that's high net worth and does investments, if you have a, a you know a reputable VC on your cap table, then they're going to feel more comfortable in the investment themselves too. So still we're probably like seventy plus percent angels at this point, but the three VCs we have really make the other people feel like they're doing something good. They know that there's been quality to due diligence behind the investment and things like that. I agree with that. I will only now do angel or seed investment if there's somebody I really trust. And really, there's only two people who I probably go in with because of that reason, right? As an individual, you don't have, well, I certainly don't have either the, the that depth of level of experience to vet them out and nor necessarily the time and nor really at my level do those individuals want to spend the time providing that due diligence information anyway. So yeah. I agree with that. The right anchor can be game-changing. Do you find from the investors you have, do you get a lot of value from them outside of uh, uh, financial I'm, investment? I'm so, so lucky with my investor group. Yes, I get tons. I mean, it, they literally get mad at me if I haven't called them and asked them to help in a couple of weeks. So I'll get calls. I mean, I got one yesterday. Brandon, I haven't talked to you for three weeks. What's going on? What can I help with? I'm like, okay, okay, I'll get to Don't worry, I'll find some tasks for you. So and you're, you'll find that a lot. That's something, the way I grew up, where I grew up, you know, basically the projects, that was a big learning step for me coming from an inner city environment like I did. People don't help each other. Me, like when I got to Vail, got to Columbia undergrad and law school, et cetera, and I realized like people help each other. I was like, whoa, this is weird. But you'll find as, a, as an entrepreneur that people, especially people who's been through it, will love to help, help. And that's why I'm doing this. I Hopefully this finds some other entrepreneur that is wondering if they can do it. And hopefully they come across this video and see that they can. So you'll be very surprised. I mean, the first couple of times, I mean, one of my biggest mentors is a, is a multi-billionaire. And I was literally, he's like, Brandon, you got to call me. And he kept on calling me, emailing me. When are you going to call me? I want to talk to you. And I finally, like, when I was the first time I called him, I'm like, he doesn't have time for me. And he literally talked to me for like two hours. Like mm -hmm. every, he, so you'll be surprised how much people love to help. They absolutely love it. It gives them a lot of value because they've been through it themselves. You know, so another message to entrepreneurs, do not be afraid to ask for help. 
because the people isn't that the biggest one i mean i think the you know ideas are cheap it's an old phrase and of course the difference is people going from an idea to actual execution and then mm -hmm. the ability to stick with it and continue to drive it to a point of success to that note, there's a, there's an old campaign from a few years ago where it was talking about women taking lead roles in TV shows and movies, and particularly women of color taking those lead roles. And if I remember it rightly, the tagline to that was, if she can see it, she can do it. Yeah. And for too long, women have not been in those roles. And so therefore, the little girls growing up don't get to see that. And they therefore don't get that inbuilt, almost, yeah. what's the word I'm searching for, permission to then go and do it themselves. So you're right, you doing this conversation will help other people down the line. Maybe they were a Marine, maybe they felt they were never gonna be in the startup world. Maybe they never thought they could do it. They will hear it and that will give them the ability to, to give themselves that permission. Yeah. Um, I think that's a very true, true cycle. So you engage with this investor group a lot, that's good. Do you find that they, it's mostly about advice or is your investor group also people who are helping you close deals, doing introductions, et cetera? Yeah, all that, all the above. Close deals, hunting people down. I'll, I'll say, hey, I need to get, we do a lot of B2B stuff. You know, I need, to, I need to get somebody at this certain corporation and I'll send out an email to my investor group, like who can get, and they'll track that person down through their networks. Feedback on financials, feedback on designs, feedback on branding, feedback on hires. You know, a lot of the times the people that bring onto the team, I usually vet through some of my investor team because they've had, I mean, they've hired way more people than I have. So, uh, you know, I, I try to get them to help me be comfortable with the new hire and a new, bringing a new person on a team, making sure they have the skills and stuff we need. But I, I mean, I, I use them to, for a, anything and everything. Anytime I have a, a question, I deal with them. You know, I, growing up, I was always told by one of my early, early mentors that you can you can learn anything you need to learn in a book, right? Mm -hmm. But nowadays, it's like, yes, I could read a book about it, but I also look into my Google contacts and I probably have somebody can tell me the same amount of knowledge from an entire book in, in a 20-minute phone call. So, Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have like this PPP, I, I called somebody I knew because US Bank wasn't getting their their stuff together. So I call somebody I knew and next thing I know, I have a banker that's helping me, running me through the steps. So, and I probably should have called them first. And business people love to help other business people that have good ideas and are willing to put the work behind. That's the biggest thing. They see you working and they see you working hard. They see you sacrificing. They see you dedicated to that vision. Then they're going to be same. They're going to be the same. Yeah, I think if an entrepreneur can tap themselves into the right community, it's, it's, it is incredible how willing people are to help each other. It, it is a community of people who do this and there is something a little bit different and crazy about it. <laughs> yeah, about, about us all for sure. Um, so going back to the beginning then, so you did $10,000 in a month, uh, shipping it out of uh, your co-founder's uh, garage. What was the next step? What was the first hire? What was the what? Sorry, I missed what the was first hire, new person hire onto the team. So I brought two co-founders on both of whom I worked with at the Vail Mountain Club. So I've known, I've worked with years before, Bethany Bontrager and Jason Karanga. <laughs> you know, Bethany's kind of an operations customer service person. Jason's kind of a relationships type sales person. So us three kind of launched that summer. We just kind of went to more and more hotels, started talking to larger partners, like, you know, the Vail Resorts of the World, Altera's, now Altera used to be, what was it? It was, to east west, not east, it was something uh, intra west, yeah. 
So talking to, them, talking to them about, you know, if they saw there's a problem and everybody agreed that it was a problem that needed to be solved. We were continuously doing shipments a little, little by little. And then the big step came, we were trying to get a deal with FedEx and they kind of wouldn't even, wouldn't even listen to us. So an opportunity came us, up for us to buy the FedEx ship center in Vail. So we ended up doing that. That got us in with FedEx. That got us going. We were doing, uh, we were running a ship center, like, you know, a, a FedEx office place. We were running that and, you know, building from that, the relationship with FedEx, getting higher and higher up in the in FedEx to get the kind of deals we needed to be able to make this economical and support our margins, et cetera. And, you know, then slowly brought on more operations people, delivery drivers, call people, et cetera. So the FedEx shipment center, is that a franchise? Yep. Yep. Okay. Interesting. So whoever just had the franchise wanted to sell it. What, what an interesting way to get the attention of your, uh, your now uh, big shipping partner. So you talked there about doing a lot of the B2B. You talked about Vail. Is most of your business then here in the mountains in Colorado? Yeah. Right now in Colorado, we started Colorado. Now we're in basically all the Western mountains, Jackson Hole, Big Sky, Park City, Deer Valley, Solitude, Alta, Snowbird, you know, even out in Tahoe, you know, Mammoth, Winter Park, Mammoth, uh, Heavenly, et cetera. So we haven't gotten a deal with the, the big companies. It's, it's, that's something I warn startups. It's really hard for the big companies to, to be able to partner with a small company like ours, a startup, because there's a lot, there's a process going that needs to be done by them and diligence that needs to be done by them. And it's, on their end, it's really risky to partner with somebody they don't know if, if that's going to be around the next year or the next two years, right? right? So, and, and they get approached so much that they, they have to feel like you're, in a lot of cases, they have to feel like you're a $100 million opportunity at some point down the line, right? For them really to give it the, the headspace. Yeah, yeah. That's, and it's not, don't quit. On, my advice would be don't quit and never stop, but just beware. It's not going to be like, there's not going to be a magical day where, you know, you get this person to sign on and everything's good. So and so, so with the resorts then that you work with, you then have to establish relationships with the hotels. Is that right? Yeah, mostly the hotels. The reason we do that is because I mean that's where the pain points most acute. One of the best things I've done, I did for the company, is you know I have law school loans, undergrad loans, so I needed to get it when I decided to make this jump. I needed a cash job. Hope the IRS doesn't ever come after me for this, but I think statute of limitations is almost up. <laughs> but uh, I needed a cash job because I needed to make some cash to be able to pay the bills. But if I made too much where I was working before, I basically had to pay half my salary to student loans. So I got a job as the bell captain at the Lodge of Vale. And best thing I did for the company because everybody knows about the problem of schlepping your stuff for the customer, right? But when I got to the hotel, I was like, whoa, it's a huge problem for the hotels as well. I mean, we would have our, our hallways the fire department would be coming in during Christmas. You got to move this stuff. You got to move this stuff. We have bags, ski gear, luggage, Amazon packages, stuff under the cafeteria tables all over the place, hard to find. We just get inundated. And hotels aren't shipping companies, right? Right. So I was like, it was an aha moment for me that, whoa, we're never going to be able to create, our vision as a company is a world without baggage claim. And we're never going to be able to create that world unless we do something for the hotels and the resorts that receive the stuff. So that's how I came up with our, our strategy of really helping the hotels, getting a, doing a last mile delivery at the right time for the hotels, et cetera, which has given us traction and provided a ton of value to our hotel partners. And it even grew into a place where we actually have Trip Hero employees on property of, of 10 hotels now. 
to do all the guest shipping, not just luggage and gear, but Amazon packages, wine.com, Chewy, orders, all that stuff. Wow. And so now those customers, I get their luggage and things, but those customers now that they've learned that they ship to you locally as opposed to shipping direct to the hotel and then you do that last mile, last at the right time. Well, the hotel helps us teach them. So like we're on the on the pre-arrivals. They, they say, you know, if you need to ship, this is how you do it. You ship through Trip Hero. You know, we're on their pre-arrival emails. We're on their websites. We train their teams to you know, concierge, et cetera. If somebody calls in, how do I ship my stuff? Here's where you ship it. You ship the trip hero. Trip hero delivers to the last day. So it's a big value add. We estimate we save hotels 40 or so thousand dollars a year at least. Wow, that's incredible. So is the hotel paying you or is it just the consumer that's shipping? The hotel, we, we share the, we get the handling fees from the hotel for the charges that, you know, somebody doesn't use trip hero. They use, you know, shipping Amazon box. We charge a handling fee that goes directly to the customer. We're exploring. We have some hotels that are willing to pay us because they don't want to charge handling fees. We're exploring those relationships as well. This model has only been on for two years now. So the first year was only two hotels. We realized the big first question was, are people going to use it? And is there enough volume to make it worthwhile? And number one answered that question, yes. So we went to five hotels. And then the question that year was, is this going to convert customers from just shipping packages like Amazon to shipping their luggage? And we came out with a resounding yes in second year. And this was the third year, obviously disrupted. But and then we're this year, our goal is to calculate the value we're providing the hotels and how much money we're saving them. So we can possibly in the future go in with a relationship. We're actually making money from the hotel as well. Yeah, I can see that. I've had to travel a lot for work in my life. And so I'm pretty loyal to a couple of hotel chains. I could absolutely see an add on service like this that helped me get my lifetime status or my uh, points. Being a uh, being a great partnership there, so the hotels now are helping you get these uh, these customers. That's great. How else are you getting the name out there and marketing the company? Unfortunately, not at all. Uh, we've been, we spent spent literally zero on on marketing, and the reason being is like, and this is a warning to entrepreneurs: you can spend so much on marketing that you, I mean, you go it goes very fast. And up until this point, this year we just brought on a, a chief marketing officer. And I wasn't comfortable spending that money because I didn't know where to spend it. So I decided like, no, we're not going to do any marketing. I was really embarrassed. And I'm sure some other, if you're another startup, we were in an accelerator. And we were, we, when we were in an accelerator, I was really embarrassed because all the other people in the accelerator had all this, they had, you know, SEO, they had all these ad, sure. you know, articles in big newspapers like the Daily Mail, et cetera. And then I, some of the metrics I got that wanted to deal with Trip Hero. And I asked him, like, why would you want to deal with Trip Hero? I was like, and they said, because you have no marketing. They're like, it's really easy for you to create a fake product because you have great marketing that, you know, you can create demand by, through the marketing. But Brandon, you guys have no marketing. So you know, this is the real product. Once you have marketing, it's going to take it to another level. We just got there this year. We brought on a CMO this year and we're starting to do some stuff. And unfortunately that stuff got shut down, but with the coronavirus, but yeah. So just as an entrepreneur, be very careful and then make sure you have somebody on your team or a mentor that is really going to guide you on where and when to spend, make sure you're getting your return on it, investment, et cetera, because it is really, you can spend infinite amount of money on marketing. Could not agree more. One of the big ideas, our trigger moment for starting Fireside was we see so many brands spend so much money without knowing how to do it. They hire an agency, they're locked in for long-term contracts. And 
we just needed to break through all that, right? We start at 500 bucks a month fixed amount per service with no contracts for that exact reason. Yeah. And we had a call this morning actually where somebody was wanting to do a number of things and we said, no, we said it won't be what you should be doing and you'll be wasting your money. So very, very in line with that. You mentioned Accelerator for people listening or watching. Uh, Accelerator is part of EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. How long were you part of uh, Accelerator? Or are you still part of Accelerator? Yeah, so we're still in the GAN Accelerator Network. We were part of the Travelport Labs. Travelport's a GDS based in the UK. They had an accelerator in Denver for a few years. They were taken back from public to private, so they, they ended the accelerator, but we're still in the network. There's a network called Global Accelerator Network, GAN. We're still part of that, but unfortunately, our accelerator had closed, but it was, a, it was a great experience. More and more mentors. They basically set you up with mentors that have experience in, in your type area. So that was, a, I mean, unbelievable experience. And then seeing, learning from all these people, and I still keep in touch. Uh, and there are a lot of them are still reaching out like, Brandon, what do you need? What do you need? So that, that was a great experience. Do you find that from your time in the Marines, that gives you a lifelong network that overlaps with what you need now as an entrepreneur? No, unfortunately, I didn't. I, I, I was injured, so I didn't finish my finish my tour. Okay. So I was only in for like a year and a half. I messed up my tour, my rotator cuff, labrum bursa, all that stuff in my in my shoulder. So, but the, the, I, you know, I have somewhat of a network, but it's not what it would have been if I had stayed in for the full time. And I, I graduated, you know, in 98. So I was in from 98 to early 2000. So it was kind of before anything big happened, which I'm super lucky. But, you know, the experience of discipline, you know, the idea that, you know, some of the stuff you do, like when you're first getting there, you, you, you think you can never do something. And then you, next thing you know, three weeks later, you're doing it. That was the biggest lesson I learned is like, you, you can do a lot more than you, you think you can. Yeah. We have some clients who really try and hire people with a military background and encourage others to do so almost universally at least with the clients we have who've done that they've had very good experiences with it any thoughts or recommendations for entrepreneurs looking to uh, looking to hire from that pool of people yeah yeah i mean i think it's obviously i'm biased towards marines but the, the, the discipline that you have and, that, and then that idea of like what you can do and what you can't do i mean you're pushed every single day you know like for example we had a minute and a half to shower and shave and the first time they told us that we're like Everybody, all 80 of us were like, there's no fucking way we're going to be able to right. do shower and shave in a minute and a half. And the next thing you know, three weeks later, we're all shower and shave in a minute and a half. You have one minute from the time they roll the trash can down the middle of the barracks to be have your bed made and be online, ready, ready to be inspected. And when you first do that, there's no fucking way we'll be able to do that. Next three weeks later, you're doing it. The obstacle course. We're going to be able to get to this on, in under seven minutes. No way we're going to be able to do that. And next thing you know, you're doing it at 630. Do you remember what your first times were when you did it? Uh, I did good. I, I had 1636 three-mile run, which was flying, 36 pull-ups, and 220 uh, sit-ups in a minute. 1636 is flying. Yep. I ran a little second. bit. I was second. I was yeah, I was I was only second then. It's not happening these days though. With this. <laughs> well, life gets to us all, Brandon. That's uh, that's for sure. That's a nice segue though. So one of the things that entrepreneurs often struggle with is finding that work-life balance, and a lot of us often can be guilty of the late nights and the long weeks and the bad eating habits and you know drinking at the end of the day to kind of deal with the stress. 
What's your experience been like of, of finding that balance as you've grown this business? Well, I didn't have a balance until recently. Recently, at 40, you know, had a heart attack. <laughs> so just a couple of months ago. And, you know, so then I was kind of forced to have that balance because, you know, pulling the all-nighters over and over again, drinking the Red Bull all night and coffee and espressos, and then eating anything that was open from Starbucks, you know, just grabbing a sandwich at Starbucks or, you know, grabbing, you're traveling and the airport, the only place is open is, is McDonald's at DIA at 5.30 a.m. So you grab a sausage, it just catches up to you. Unfortunately, I'm getting old too, right? So I had been doing that for a lot of years. And then recently, like I said, I had a heart attack. And so I have to change all that. I find that it's not actually as hard as you think. It's, a, it's another one of those things that, you know, if you build it up in your head, it's going to be really difficult. But, you know, right now I'm doing intermittent fasting, eating one meal a day, I eat between 6 and 10 p.m. I've lost like 12 pounds already. You know, got my Fitbit the day I got out of the hospital. So I've had over 10,000 steps every day since I've gotten out of the hospital and that kind of stuff. Because, you know, it was really, it was a big, big life thing. You know, I, I don't really show it much about that kind of stuff, but you know, it did make me think like, whoa, hey, I know I'm going to be successful. I know I'm going to get this someday, but hey, am I going to actually be able to spend the money when I actually make it? So it was like, and then obviously I had a, I recently had a daughter, so that, that changes it too. So I'm not into this, you know, the politically correct, there's going to be, you know, work-life balance stuff. I think that can be quickly become a lie because yep. you're going to have to have a lot of sacrifices if you're going to be an entrepreneur. That's part of it. You can't get around that. There's no such thing as a 40 hour work week. When you go to these panels and stuff and people are saying like, oh, you got to take work your 40 hours. I mean, like you're setting yourself up for failure. But just because you're working hard, you're working a lot of hours doesn't mean you can't be healthy. That's something I learned from a lot of my mentors. And a lot of them have been through the kind of same sequence up until their late 30s, early 40s. They just burned the candle on both ends, ate horrible. Then they start getting old and starts catching up to them. But what I say is you got you to gotta focus the same focus that you have on your business, you got to also have on your health. So it actually makes the work-life balance even less, I think, because like, mm -hmm. you got to be dedicated. You got to make sure you get up at 530, get your 10,000 steps, run a mile, don't eat all day, make sure you're, you know, so it's discipline and sacrifice. It's the, so your health will require that at some point, no matter who you are. But I think rather than kind of thinking about work-life balance way, you think about it as you got to apply the same discipline you apply to your business that you do to your health as well. It, it does make sense, actually. I think the the industry looks at the startup world and the entrepreneur really in the wrong way. I wish I could remember the name of the gentleman who coined this phrase, but the phrase startup porn, I think, really has uh, has become very relevant over the last few years from people posting on LinkedIn that celebrating their VC wins, celebrating working 70, 80 hours a week, portraying themselves as a hero for doing that. And I understand that it, it is one way of communicating the sacrifice, of course. However, I'd much rather people were having an honest conversation about it and saying, you know what, that was a really damn hard, shitty week, right? I put in all these hours. I don't even feel like I made much movement forward this week. And that kind of sucks. And now I need to go take like half a day to really look after myself. I'd, I'd really rather see people talking like that rather than just celebrating, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And, and either way, like it goes both ways, right? People celebrate the hardness and then people celebrate, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the most work-life balance CEO there is, you know, it's so like, it, it just got to make it a part of what you do. That's very true. Yeah. And you, look there are, I suppose the downside of that is there are also though, those people who they don't talk about how hard it is. And then 
I remember when we sold our last business, the number of people that just said to us afterwards, oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> oh my God. And I remember my mother saying this. I was very fortunate in that I think I got that mental permission to be an entrepreneur from my parents because that's what they did. And they had nursing homes. And my mom worked her ass off her entire life and in her 60s sold that business and did okay from it. And she said exactly the same thing. She said the number of friends and family would say to her, oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. Right. Because all they see is the big number at the end. And often the big number in the end isn't, of course, really what we get, particularly when there's VCs involved. And they don't necessarily understand what it took to get there and yeah. realize that it really wasn't luck at all. No, there are probably very few lucky entrepreneurs. <laughs> now, I do believe in something called smart luck, I think, which is I would define smart luck as. Bill Gates, for instance, talks about in his very early days, he got access to a university computing lab, for instance, yep. that allowed him to get a bit of a, a leg up. Sure, you could say he was lucky to have that. You could say you were lucky to have the opportunity to work in that Vail club and have access to those people and understand that business. Sure, absolutely. However, that little bit of luck isn't now what has turned you into a successful business owner. That was a little bit of luck that you were smart enough to see and then yeah. make the most of. And, and so I think luck from that point of view is okay to assign to the entrepreneurial world for sure. Yeah. One of the ways I always think about it, I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. Ah. And the, one of the stories, Watson is talking to Holmes after Holmes solved the case. And he's, Watson says to Holmes, paraphrased, Watson says, Holmes, you have to admit on this one, you got a little bit lucky. And Holmes responds to Watson, Watson, I may have gotten lucky, but I put myself in the position to be lucky. I like that. I like yeah. that. There are many people I talk to who can uh, quote Sherlock Holmes to that level of detail. Yeah, I can, I can quote it. I absolutely love it. Read everyone I, several times. There is a great lesson, I think, from that that I've applied to parenting. So I have a whole slew of teenage daughters. <laughs> and uh, I once read this thing, which was, don't congratulate them on the outcome. Congratulate them on the effort it took to get there. And it, this actually came up again just today. So my oldest two are 16 going on 17. And for listeners in England, they're in their, the first of their two years of what we call A-levels. And one of my daughter's reports came out today and they grade them on the three subjects they do. And then they grade them on their effort. And she got very good grades, but actually that wasn't the thing that I called her to congratulate her on. I called her to congratulate that she got the highest mark she could for attention to learning. And that, to me, since I read it, has been something we've applied to parenting since they were very young, because sometimes they're going to do well because they find that easy. And other times they're going to do badly because they didn't put in enough work to learn it. Yes. And I've definitely embraced that myself, because, as you know, in business, not everything goes well. And so even when things do go well, I try and mentally give myself that tick of not, hey, yeah, that was a great outcome. More yeah, you worked really hard. Yeah. And sometimes the outcome's good and sometimes the outcome's bad. Maybe that's a, when we think about work-life balance or mental well-being, maybe that's a more realistic approach as entrepreneurs we take. Congratulate the effort and exactly. celebrate the wins as they come. Yeah. That's why I do that with my team all the time as well because when you're trying something that nobody else has done, you're going to automatically fail a lot of times with different parts of it. So what's important is if you keep on doing it, you learn from that mistake and you have the moxie to get back up and do it again. That's right. Were you scared when you started because you were doing something new? I was scared of raising money. Mm -hmm. I was scared of asking for help. 
I think, and that goes back to where I grew up and how I grew up. But now, and that's one of the best things about it. Like after I learned how to ask for money, after I learned how to ask for help, like the things I'm afraid of right now are, aren't many. And that's a good place to be uh, because most fears are irrational, et cetera. But, you know, something I've always done, like it's just something maybe inherent in me. I don't know. But even as a kid, somebody would be like, I bet you, I, you're scared to jump off that. You won't do that. I'm like, say I won't, say I won't. So they said I won't, boom, I did it. So like, I'm afraid of being afraid. So if something makes me, like the first time I, I was on an investor call, like literally I threw up afterwards. You know, I was wow. asking for $200,000. And for me, $200,000 was like, whoa. Back then was like, man, that's a lot of money. And I was literally got off the phone and I was like, bleh, bleh. I, I threw up after that 1636 too, by the way. So you, you got to kind of mess with your mind to make it where you're afraid to be afraid. Like if I'm ever in a position where I'm like, oh, I'm feeling afraid, I do whatever I can to go dead on straight towards that fear and get get it over with. Because how many times you ever take this in your life? How many times have you done something you were initially afraid of and it didn't end up being that bad? Almost all the time. This whole situation we're in now, everybody's afraid. If we go into it directly, it's, we're going to come out on the other, other side and be like, why are we afraid of that? You know, it's more like fear paralyzes, you know, and you can't be paralyzed in business. You can't be paralyzed as an entrepreneur. You can't be paralyzed as an athlete. You can't be paralyzed as anything in a, in a relationship. You can't be paralyzed raising kids, right? You know, so fear is the enemy. And I try to face it head on anytime I get it. Wow. What an amazing lesson. For listeners in the future, we're recording this in 2020 in April. So we're very much in the middle of the the pandemic with uh, without really an answer yet as to uh, as to what's going to evolve over the next uh, next few months. Brandon, this has been an amazing conversation. You've really communicated, I think, some wonderful lessons and advice to the audience. And I think it's going to achieve your goal. I think it's going to help other people listening to this feel like they have a little bit more permission and, and hopefully self-confidence to go do what you do and, and build a business. Will you tell the audience, please, where they can learn more about Trip Hero? Yep. Uh, our website is www.gotriphero.com. We you know ship items all around the world, domestically in the U.S., et cetera. So go there, find out any kind of items you ship. We'll, we will help you take care of that. And, you know, don't be afraid to go to your favorite place because you, we can get your stuff there for you. No more baggage claim. I really, baggage claim. I really like that. Everybody, thank you very much for listening or watching. As always, you can go to meetfireside.com to learn more about our services for small businesses. You can click on the smallest tab to watch these episodes in video form, and you can download us wherever you like to get your favorite podcasts from.